Our worst fears have now come true, and all our warnings have proved tragically accurate. Six months ago, on February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. President Putin of Russia has unleashed war in our European continent. He's attacked a friendly country without any provocation and without any credible excuse. In response, Western nations banded together like never before to issue sanctions. And Putin's aggression against Ukraine will end up costing Russia dearly, economically and strategically. We will make sure of that. Initially, the Russian economy appeared to be in deep trouble. We've already seen the impact of our actions on Russia's currency and the ruble, which early today hit its weakest level ever, ever in history. The Russian stock market plunged today. The Russian government's borrowing rates spiked by over 15%. But today, the ruble has recovered and the Russian economy is doing better than expected. Is the West losing the sanctions war? You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, six months on, we ask, how have Western sanctions affected Russia? First, we'll try to understand why the Russian economy has outperformed expectations. So it's a kind of combination of policy plus hydrocarbons, I think, that has really explained what's going on. Then we'll look at history for a guide as to how long it usually takes sanctions to bite. One of the cases that has a lot of similarities with it is uh, the use of sanctions by the international community and the League of Nations in the 1930s against fascist Italy when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. Finally, we'll ask what else can be done to put economic pressure on Russia. I think going forward, there are definitely policy options. And I think energy sector is the key area where much more can be done. And if that will be enough to help end the war. Hey, Alison, Mike. Hello. Hey, Simea. This week is, is a pretty somber anniversary. It's been six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. That's right. And our daily podcast, The Intelligence, has an episode out today Wednesday, August 24th, looking at the state of the war. But because we're money talks, we're not going to focus on the battles being fought on the ground. We're going to look at the economic war that the West has been waging on Russia. In the weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, the West imposed extraordinary and unprecedented sanctions. Right. And those basically fell into three buckets. They hit the financial system using extreme and novel tactics like freezing central bank reserves and kicking Russian banks off SWIFT. They hit trade, in part by imposing export bans, which previously had only been used on individual firms, not on an entire country. And hit the Kremlin's cronies by freezing assets. Yet wave after wave of penalties, the EU actually passed its seventh package last month. They've come and still policymakers are trying to do more. Now, to be clear, Russia's economy is hurting, just not as much as was expected. At first, the IMF thought it would contract by 8.5% this year. Now they think it's closer to a contraction of 6%. To figure out how and why Russia's economy isn't being hit harder, I rang up our colleague Callum Williams. He's been looking through tons of official and unofficial economic data coming out of Russia. Hey, Callum. Hi, Zemaya. You've been looking at the state of Russia's economy. What have you found? 
So as always with Russia, it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on with the economy. So, you know, that caveat notwithstanding, it's pretty clear now, I think, uh, and in fact, I think it has been clear for a few months that the economy really is outperforming by quite a long way the very, very gloomy expectations that existed a few months ago. And it's on track for a recession, but not a particularly deep recession by Russian standards. Can you give us any more detail in terms of what we're seeing? So we're seeing in the official numbers, which generally speaking can be trusted or they give a a kind of decent impression of what's going on. It's clear that the economy is in recession. Unemployment is still pretty low. Underemployment is probably rising as people's hours are cut and that kind of thing. Wages have kind of come down a bit in real terms, but have been growing in recent months after a big slump in February and March. And then Russians are still actually consuming quite a lot of imports. There was a massive collapse in imports in sort of March and April. But what's happened since then is that for various reasons, Russians and Russian companies have found it easier to get their hands on goods produced abroad, particularly from places like Turkey and China. And so overall imports to Russia are now growing quite quickly. I mean, there has been some debate, though, about just how well the Russian economy is doing. And I think it, it's fairly uncontroversial to say that that things haven't turned out quite as badly as the, the most extreme doomsters predicted. But just thinking about how well Russia's doing in, in level terms, you've got eye-wateringly high interest rates, you've got um, car production is down massively, you've had huge amounts of capital being pulled out from the country, reports of lots of people leaving. What's your response to those who say these official statistics are are painting a picture that's too rosy? So you're right, there is this very, very furious debate. There was a paper by a few Yale economists that came out a few weeks ago, which essentially said that people who have made the case that Russia is holding up fairly well are regurgitating Putin's favoured statistics to make that case. And then you have others, including us in the newspaper a couple of times in recent months, that have said, no, actually things are kind of doing better than than people might have thought and and better uh, compared to, to previous recessions also. You have to, I think, take a really macro view. There are unquestionably very big pockets of, of weakness. So the car sector is one. There are lots of kind of what are called mono cities, which are dependent on just one industry in Russia. A lot of them are really suffering. And uh, yes, lots of people are leaving and people are trying to pull out money where they can. But on the whole, you do, when all this washes out, still find an economy that probably now is growing after a big fall and is sort of on track for a relatively mild recession. Okay, well, let's go on to why you think it is that Russia has defied expectations and and the sanctions just haven't hit as hard as the governments wielding them were hoping. So there's a few things going on. The big elephant in the room is that obviously sanctions did not cover Russia's biggest exports of hydrocarbons. Everyone knows that, I think, by now. But that's kind of that's a big thing. So Russia has earned a lot of money by selling uh, particularly to Europe since the start of the invasion. And uh, it has found ways, despite sanctions, to spend the foreign exchange thus earned. I think policy plays a big role as well. So before the crisis, you had a big effort by various policymakers, including the central bank, to reduce external debt, reduce foreign denominated debt. And this means that Russia didn't face the kind of emerging market style balance of payments crisis that you know you might have expected, and indeed it did experience a few decades ago. You also had a massive effort which involved fiscal policy also to build up a very large war chest of foreign exchange reserves. 
Some of those foreign exchange reserves cannot be spent because of sanctions. So that, in a sense, was a waste of time. But a lot of the foreign exchange reserves that they built up can be spent, including gold and yuan and so forth. So that's helped too. And you also now have a central bank that responded very quickly to the shock that hit the Russian economy in late February. So they immediately stepped in, doubled interest rates, left nobody in any doubt that they were serious about controlling inflation. And what you had in the data is, and this is not from official data, this is from another survey by some American researchers, is you do have a a large increase in inflation expectations of people, households, in March and April. People were starting to worry something was going to happen. But quite quickly, it became clear to everyone that the government was very, you know, serious about getting inflation down. And now inflation expectations are kind of where they were before the invasion. And so it's a kind of combination of policy plus hydrocarbons, I think, that has really explained what's going on. Okay, well, Callum, thank you so much. We're going to hear again from you later in the show about what the future might look like for Russia. So so hold tight. Sounds good. This is essentially the state of affairs. The war has entered a protracted phase and the historic sweeping sanctions imposed so far haven't bitten quite as much as the West had hoped for, at least not yet. Exactly. And so we've six months into this and the question is, do sanctions just take longer to have a full effect? Or if Western governments really want to hit the Russian economy, do they have to do more? Yeah. And to try to answer that, I rang up Nicholas Mulder. He is an assistant professor of history at Cornell, and he wrote a book called The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War, which has lots and lots of historical examples. Professor Mulder, hello. Pleasure to be here. Can we start by going back to history? So what are the closest historical parallels to the sanctions that were placed on Russia earlier this year? One of the cases that has a lot of similarities with it is uh, the use of sanctions by the international community and the League of Nations in the 1930s against fascist Italy when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. Sanctions. London's Italian quarter feels the pinch as Britain and 50 other nations curtail their trade with Italy to show their disapproval of war in Ethiopia. And the goals are very similar, trying to stop an aggressor from uh, continuing to invade and attack another country. Italy's people respond to Mussolini's call to tighten the nation's belt. They go on rations. Even the school children bring scraps of iron and copper, their playthings, to be melted down. And uh, I would say that that's probably one of the cases Uh, that has resembled it most, both in terms of the number of countries participating, the speed with which they've responded, uh, and now the ongoing war. Would you draw any parallels between the the effects of those sanctions? Well, it was a very different time, and the world economy worked quite differently. It was already globalized, but not in the same way as it is today. And for one thing, it was easier in some ways to survive uh, without access, for example, to money and, and, and banking services. Today, that's extremely important. So the financial sanctions against Russia certainly uh, are an important thing that we have now that wasn't present then. Uh, one of the things, however, that's an interesting comparison is that there were many discussions about doing more in the 1930s, in 1935, uh, against Mussolini to try and stop him uh, during his invasion of Ethiopia. And particularly, there was a big discussion about imposing an embargo on sales of oil to Italy. And that's actually, in a sense, the inverse of what we're having now. Russia is selling a lot of oil. We're trying to stop them from selling that and earning money. 
uh, to fund their war effort. Uh, in the case of Italy, it was actually a more straightforward question of depriving Italy itself of oil because then they couldn't run their tanks and fuel their ships anymore that were going to Africa. So there's some similarities, but also some big differences. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the the really striking thing about the current situation is that sanctions on Russia refusing to buy Russian oil, that's just extraordinarily painful for the countries involved. It sounds like in the case of Italy, it was perhaps slightly less painful to expand those, those sanctions in that way. Yes, it was less painful uh, to do it. And the other comparable cases that you can think about, for example, were sanctions on apartheid South Africa uh, during the Cold War. Uh, there too, you had a country that was dependent on lots of oil. So it's always easier to cut off countries' access to oil than to try and drive all of their exports off of world markets. And we actually haven't really tried it that often to do what we're trying to do now, which is to reduce Russian oil and gas exports over time to zero. The only other cases are really Iraq in the 1990s, where there was an embargo on trying to have Saddam sell oil, and more recently against Venezuela and Iran. Uh, but this is really only the fourth time or so that we're trying to do this. And it's also the biggest oil exporter we've ever tried to do it against. So that poses some unique challenges. Can you say a bit more about what happened in those cases of Iraq and Venezuela when we, we tried something perhaps not of the same scale, but of, of the same type? Yes, well, it, in a sense, was a bit easier than today because both Iraq and, uh, and Iran, also in Venezuela, have a, a lot of oil exports relative to their economy, but not that much relative to all the oil being sold in the world. So you're only reducing global oil supply by maybe one or two percent. And it's always quite easy to find another country that can pump a bit more. So... On balance, essentially, uh, it's not going to cause as many problems for the world economy as sanctions against Russia are causing now. And in those cases, what was done in Iraq, there was a United Nations embargo. So that made it uniquely effective and also damaging to Iraq because all members of the United Nations were forced to uh, implement those sanctions. Against Iran, it was more led by the United States and uh, European countries didn't really want to go along, but they were actually forced by the US uh, through extraterritorial sanctions also to cease buying oil. Uh, and when Trump reimposed sanctions on Iran in 2018, you could see some of those dynamics played out. So he also forced some Asian countries like India and South Korea to stop buying Iranian oil. And again, it was possible to do that because Iran is not the only source of oil in the world. It's proving a lot more difficult uh, to do that against Russia, uh, particularly since those sanctions against Iran and Venezuela are still in place. So uh, the oil supply is being reduced more and more in that sense. Yeah, I think thinking about the historical examples, clearly there have been lots of attempts to apply sanctions, but it does seem like this case of Russia is different to what we've seen in the past. But let's focus on on the economic similarities between what we're seeing now and in those earlier cases. One of the frustrations now is that the sanctions on Russia are just taking quite a long time. Are there historical parallels there? I mean, thinking back to those examples you just mentioned, how long did those sanctions take to bite? Yeah, so, well, there's two things I think that's useful to distinguish. Uh, the economic effects of the sanctions, which can start uh, to occur very rapidly and indeed have been occurring already in Russia. So the Russian economy definitely is being very strongly affected by these sanctions. Uh, the damage is severe. 
That's the effects side of it. But then there's another thing, which is efficacy in the long run, right? Do you actually get the behavioral change that you want to see? Do they change their policy? Do they stop their war or shift uh, whatever it is that you want them to stop doing? That's much more difficult. And the time between when the effects begin and when that actually translates into preparedness to change your behavior politically can be quite a long time. With South Africa under apartheid as well, the first effects of those sanctions already began to bite in the 60s and 70s. And they reorganized their economy. They managed to last for uh, quite a while, 15, 20 years. But then in the 80s, a whole new wave of sanctions uh, happened. And then there was a more of a preparedness on the part of the uh, apartheid regime uh, to change uh, their domestic politics uh, in line with what you know the opponents of apartheid were demanding. Uh, but that took 30, 40 years uh, altogether. And even between the last round of heavy sanctions on South Africa and the eventual change, it was four, five, six years between uh, when they imposed the sanctions and uh, when Mandela was freed in 1990. I mean, what do you think that policymakers should learn from this experience, given that globalization clearly makes it easier in some cases for, for countries to sidestep the effects of sanctions? I think one thing that policymakers should take away from this is that it's quite difficult to predict what the effects of the sanctions will be when you embark on them at this scale. One of the ways in which you saw that is that there was a very strong financial market reaction. The ruble absolutely tanked uh, the weekend of the 26th of February when the central bank asset freezes were announced. And it seemed at that point, really, that Putin would be in big trouble very quickly. The fact that then ended up quite differently, I think, shows that there's a big shock effect that sort of ripples through financial markets, ripples through commodity markets. You could also see the prices of everything, oil, gas, nickel, copper, wheat, uh, spike dramatically, even more so after the sanctions and after the start of the war itself, actually. So I think you can really see that it's the sanctions that magnified the effect. But since then also, it has had a number of unintended consequences, particularly in uh, the exports of grain and fertilizer. Those are down quite a lot, even though there aren't any sanctions on Russian grain exports or Russian fertilizer exports. But nonetheless, the fact that there are now so many other sanctions in place means that there's a chilling effect for the corporate world. And I think that this is really where policymakers should focus, figuring out how can you provide clear guidance for companies so that the sanctions do what they're intended to do, but that they don't create this panic effect. And that's something that we definitely saw, and it caused a lot more damage also to people that were not supposed to be the target, like in Central Asia and the Middle East and North Africa. And I think that that's actually quite urgent, because when you're using sanctions at this scale, you're really using a kind of sledgehammer in the world economy, um, and collateral damage is quite likely. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, after the break, we're going to hear from the Institute of International Finance's Deputy Chief Economist, Alina Rybakova, about what else Western powers can do to hurt Russia economically. But before that... It is our favourite time in the show. It's where we ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist. Otherwise, how else will you be able to read Callum and Mathieu's full analysis of who's winning the sanctions war? There's also an excellent long briefing looking at gene therapy. And you can read Mike's piece on why food prices like grains have fallen back to their pre-war levels. Listeners can also get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you so much, you should check out our subscriber-only newsletters like Money Talks or The Bottom Line. They're available at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, we have looked to the past, but I want to look ahead to the future, to where the economic war goes from here. And to get a sense of what else could be done to pressure Russia, I rang up Alina Rubikova. She's the deputy economist at the Institute for International Finance. You might remember that we spoke to her colleague Robin Brooks in our episode looking at the resilience of the ruble. Alina, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's start with the the biggest controversy in town right now, this question of whether the sanctions have had the effect on the Russian economy that was hoped for. Do you agree with the analysis that, that sanctions have disappointed in some sense, that they haven't had the effect on, on the Russian economy that was hoped for? Well, I'm very glad you're bringing up this question because I think sanctions, like any other topic, it's important to have nuance around the debate and it's rarely black and white. Sanctions are not as easy as flipping a switch. You know, it's not that you flip and the lights go on or off. You know, in Russia, the whole lights go off and Russia goes down the drain. No, it doesn't happen this way. Uh, That's first. Uh, They take time to work through. And at the same time, as we have seen also with Fortress Russia, you know, they need to be adjusted over time. The other side also learns how to live with sanctions. We have seen numerous examples, whether it's Russia, South Africa, um, Iran, you know, uh, they find ways to go around those sanctions. And these sanctions have to be continuously adjusted. You shared some really interesting analysis recently on what international companies were doing with respect to Russia, right? I mean, one potential consequence of these sanctions is that you would get companies withdrawing from Russia that would starve it of ideas, capital. But it looks like lots of companies aren't withdrawing. Why is that? Well, I think it is complicated for companies to withdraw. You know, there are numerous factors preventing them from withdrawing overnight. And that depends very much on the industry. The degree of investment in Russia is very different for a company in consumer cyclicals compared to a company that had investments, factories and a large number of staff in Russia. Um, then there's also moral dilemmas, like, for example, for pharma companies, because you will deprive Russian uh, cancer patients. Some of them actually even traveled from Ukraine to Russia to be able to get that treatment. They will not be able to get that treatment. So, you know, whether it's uh, dental care, pharma, uh, sort of uh, cancer treatment or HIV treatment. So by withdrawing, you are also taking on that responsibility uh, as a corporate That's really interesting. I mean, one other, um, I guess, difference that that really struck me looking at at that analysis was the differences across countries, right? It's not just differences across sectors in terms of what companies are doing. Companies that are headquartered in, say, uh, the UK seem to be much more likely to have left Russia or to be wanting to leave Russia than, say, German or Italian headquartered companies. Do you have any theories as to why that difference is there? 
Well, I think the first big difference, and we've tried it to do it differently, we tried to code uh, companies from NATO countries, not NATO countries, from companies that sanctioned and that not sanctioned. And there you see the most striking difference. So the companies that are headquarters in countries that have sanctioned Russia, they're disproportionately high, more likely to withdraw. And we see that also doing, you know, eyeballing the data and also doing highly sophisticated Bayesian analysis. You see that either way. Then we do indeed see by company where UK, US appear to have withdrawn more. And then some of the European companies are still in the wait and see approach. What I do find in our econometric analysis is that companies that have higher global revenues, it appears to be easier for them to withdraw. Right. And that makes sense. If it's easy for you to substitute away, you will. Cutting off Russia isn't so difficult. Can we now turn to thinking about the uh, policy choices that, that governments face? You know, you've had governments who've been trying to apply these sanctions on Russia. The economic outlook for Russia isn't looking great, but it's certainly not looking anywhere near as bad as what people were expecting at the beginning of the year. What options do you think that policymakers have for increasing the effect of these sanctions on Russia? Well, I think going forward, there are definitely policy options. And, and I think energy sector is the key area where much more can be done. But it's also the area where it is not costless for the sanctioning country either. Energy sanctions where it gets more complicated because, as you know very well, Europe is very dependent on Russian gas and global oil prices impact almost everybody around the world, and including the US. What about beyond commodities, though? Is there any potential there? I mean, what about export controls? Russia as a commodity exporter, you know, classical Dutch disease where you're too exposed to the energy exports or any commodity exports is not in theory, if you look at the big macro picture, too reliant on the global value chains. So if you put all OECD countries, you know, Russia is somewhere at the bottom of it in terms of integration, which is not surprising. It's not producing highly sophisticated chips or, or cars, right? Therefore, it's not really integrated. It is commodity exporter. But at the same time, there are industries like we've seen in car manufacturing and aluminium production. Uh, there are industry by industry where we could find these choke points where, again, the Western or countries against the war have leverage with export controls and continue pressing them further. Because even though at the macro numbers, it seems small, but it could be the sort of the right choke point that could have disproportionate effects on the rest of the industry. I have one final question. Mostly we've focused on Europe, the US, Western powers who are trying to help Ukraine you know, fight back against Russia. But there are lots of countries on the sidelines here, right? India, um, you know, China, Turkey. Do you think that there's more that those governments could do or, or are likely to do? Well, I think it's... Um it's an important point that we have another sort of a big block of countries that are trying to be agnostic. And the reasons vary. But I think the most primal reasons is that they feel probably the conflict is too far away from them relative to the problems that they're having domestically. You know, whether it's China, China had its own trade war issues with the US, you know, whether it's Turkey, which has its own macroeconomic difficulties with inflation <laughs> in the 70s, right, and no reserves, um, India, which is highly dependent on energy exports and, uh, you know, for their current account and has their own issues with the financial sector. So a lot of these countries, you know, they would maybe prefer that otherwise there wouldn't be a war, but the war seems to be distant and relative to the costs that they're already bearing in their economies. So I think here there is a big risk of, on one hand of geopolitization and fragmentation of energy markets. And I think this could be an important unintended consequences of poorly designed energy sanctions on Russia. 
that we're not only going to not hurt Russia sufficiently, but we indirectly might benefit countries like China and India where they will get energy at a cheaper price. So I think that's something that needs to be studied and designed carefully. And I'm sure the authorities already, I know the authorities already doing that. The other aspect is administrative capacity to pursue sanctions avoidance by various countries. And we already have seen a massive increase of, for example, exports from Turkey to Russia, disproportionate. Uh, we've also seen, for example, in Kazakhstan on the border, there are, there are car repair shops being set up so that Russians can drive in, repair and drive out. We've also seen some of the pickups again and trade flows disproportionately with Kazakhstan. So I think that's where, you know, as we've started our conversation, sanctions are not static. You need to keep on adjusting them as time goes on. Alina, that's already fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now, we've looked at how long historically it takes sanctions to bite and what else Western powers could do to sanction Russia. So I want to bring back Callum to chat about what all of this means for the country's future. Callum, welcome back. Um, We heard from both Alina and Nicholas about the importance of building this wide coalition uh, of countries that would apply these sanctions on Russia. What do you make of that? What you're seeing at the moment is that in many different ways, countries that are not involved in sanctions against Russia in any meaningful sense are kind of a bit of an escape valve for the Russian economy. So some people are are talking about this idea of, oh, what we need to do is we need to, for example, put secondary sanctions on on countries that continue to trade with, with Russia in order to stop them from doing it in the same way that it happened with Iran and stuff over the nuclear negotiations. I mean, to me, that seems like to be honest, a a complete non-starter. The West just doesn't have the same economic clout in the global economy that it it used to even kind of 10 or 20 years ago. So a great idea in theory, in practice, it's it's just not going to happen. What do you think governments can do then in terms of tightening the screws on Russia? Well, I think the optimistic case is that the time it will take Russia to really diversify away from reliance on the West That will take longer than it will for the West to decide to diversify away from Russian fossil fuels. I mean, there's no question that this winter in Europe is going to be very tough for a lot of people. But I think over the coming years, you can see a world in which Europe does not consume as much or, you know, maybe even any Russian oil or gas. And in that kind of world, then Russian leverage is is much, it's not gone, but it's much lower than it used to be. And so I think in terms of the long game, it has to be that for Europe. There's not really much else they can do. Yeah. Now, our colleague Mathieu Favas has written a companion piece to yours looking at the longer term horizon. And he essentially argues that this is a slow squeeze rather than a quick crunch. He gave the example that a lack of plane parts mean that within a couple of years, planes could be unsafe to fly in Russia. I mean, could it be that in the short term, the forecasters were too pessimistic, but actually with a longer term outlook, they were too optimistic? That could well be true. My view on that is that there's a few things going on. One is that what you've kind of slightly seen rhetorically from economists is as the economy in the short term has done better than expected, people have kind of said, oh, no, 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 we never we never actually said the economy in the short term is going to do badly. It was always going to be in the long term that it does badly, which is a bit of a sleight of hand. There's a certain amount of motivated reasoning and wishful thinking going on because people really do want Russia to collapse. 
And so I think it's always worth being on guard for thinking in that way because everybody wants Ukraine to win so badly and Russia to lose so badly that it's it's easy to get swept up in the notion that Russia is about on the verge of collapse. I mean, I do agree that the long-run outlook for Russia is definitely worse than it was before the invasion. The question is the magnitude of that decline. The fact that already it's clear that China, Turkey, India and others have to a great degree stepped up to sort of take the Russian slack makes me think that the long run hit won't be as bad as some people hope. But I'm, I, in a sense, I'm really hopeful that I'm proved wrong. I hope you're proved wrong too. Callum, thank you so much. Thank you. So Mike and Alice, what do you take away from all of this? Who is winning the sanctions war? And Mike, why don't you go first, since you hosted that last episode we did looking at the ruble back in April? Yeah, I think it's fascinating because it felt so immediate. And I think we were still talking about sanctions almost as this sort of very short-term blockage that was designed to do sort of significant financial damage really to the Russian economy in the hope that that either prevented their ability to actually prosecute the war. But I think more in terms of doing some damage into uh, and sort of convincing the Russian government that this was uh, that this was not a good idea. And I think when we talk about it now, it's very clear that that element of things has passed, that these sanctions have not convinced the, the Russian government or perhaps the Russian people to, to sort of change their view of what's happening here. And it's more, much more about sort of actually damaging the ability to, to fight the war. And that opens up interesting new avenues. One that I've been paying a bit of attention to is um, marine insurance, uh, which is one area of sanctions which is still really being explored. And there's a lot of back and forth between the EU and US about how extensive that would be. Basically, uh, you know, stopping the insurance of ships that are transporting uh, oil and other hydrocarbons from Russia, which would be another sort of avenue to pursue. All of this made just so much more difficult by the, the sort of horrendous position that a lot of European economies in particular are in, and the fact that any additional thing that you do might compound that situation and make it a little bit worse economically at home. Yeah, I, I agree with Mike that, you know, what we saw in the very early phases of the war, in particular, that really violent reaction in financial markets where you had the ruble go through the floor and the stock market crash, you know, those moves were predicated on the idea that sanctions would have this sort of really aggressive and immediate effect. And it's clear that, you know, that sort of, I guess, speculative move down in those in those financial markets was probably a little overblown. Having said that, reading Mathieu's piece, I was really struck by the details that he had on the idea that although the immediate impact of sanctions maybe wasn't as intense as people were expecting, the longer term issues for Russia uh, that it faces, in particular as a result of sanctions that are not as much talked about, like export bans, appear to be potentially quite devastating. So, for example, without Western parts and imports, some key Russian industries appear to just be totally incapable of functioning. Uh, He pointed out that manufacturing of cars, for instance, collapsed by 90% between December and June. And in May, Russia eased safety measures to allow for the production of cars in Russia without airbags and anti-lock brakes. But airbags were invented in the 1950s. And the idea that, you know, Russian cars might no longer have them, it just strikes me as a huge, huge step backwards. 
Yeah, I think building on that, the thing that really struck me reading Mathieu's analysis was this possibility of cliff edge effects. It's possible that actually in some places in manufacturing, the hit might not have been that bad so far, really because companies are running down their inventory. But once you've run out of a particular part, that's it. You know, there's there's a sort of sudden stop in terms of production. I mean, if there's been any lessons about supply chains and and COVID-19 over the past couple of years, it's that um, sometimes the effects of these things can be nonlinear. And obviously, in terms of the medium to long term, the chill on investment, the lack of ideas flowing across borders in the same way, that's just very damaging to, to Russia's growth prospects. Okay, so I think now we should pivot to our stats of the week. Uh, Mike, do you want to go first? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've chosen something that isn't denominated in yen this time to uh, to set off uh, Alice's constant complaint that I'm always picking big numbers because they're in a, in a very weak currency. And uh, the number I'm going for this week is 44.1, which is the services reading on the uh, S&P Global Flash US services, uh, PMI. For those who aren't aware of the PMI readings, they're purchasing managers, indexes, basically, bottom line, anything below 50 is extremely bad news. It means an economy or a sector of the economy is contracting. 44.1 for context is lower than the series has ever been. The series is 13 years old, uh, except the period at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. And I think that's that really struck me for just how weak um, some parts of the developed world economy are now. Uh, yeah, really striking figure there. So you haven't gone for a figure in yen, but you have gone for a characteristically dismal number. It's got to be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> uh Great. So my stat of the week is $379 billion, which is the drawdown in FX reserves globally this year. Uh, This is according to figures published by the IMF. So emerging markets in particular have been spending all of their FX reserves on defending their currencies and covering the costs of higher imports and food. And if you listen to our twin episodes on the strength of the dollar and the perils of EM. You should already know that. But that is the biggest decline in foreign exchange reserves since 2008, the depth of the global financial crisis. So a really significant drawdown in FX reserves this year. Okay, well, I'm going to continue the the gloomy theme and give my stat of 60%. And so that's how much of the expected increase in energy bills the British government's support package is expected to cover. Back in May, when the the final tranche of the support was announced, the government thought that it would cover 90% of the higher bills. But a new report from the Institute for Government says that actually now that's only 60%. That's, yeah, unremittingly grim all around. I, I think we should pledge maybe next week to do only positive stats. Everyone has to find something not horrendous to say. No, I'm making no promises. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That would be good. Scrooge over here. <laughs> and with that, our thanks this week go to Nicholas Mulder and Alina Ribikova. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us uh, sending your statistics, happy statistics, just to me at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was edited by Kim Gibson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. I'm Samaya Keynes. 
I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. <laughs> 